Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape the community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Marvel movies have been dominating global screens for more than a decade. To date, of the 25 highest-grossing films of all time, eight of them belong to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But what do these films say about our culture? And perhaps more importantly, what are these films teaching this global audience? A new book called The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is exploring their cultural impact and, of course, the politics espoused in these films. Dr. Lily Gorin is an author and editor of the book, and she joins me now to talk about it. Lily, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be on Lake Effect. So when you look at the major films made over the last couple decades, it's really astounding how many of them are from the cinematic universe, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How impactful are these films? What is interesting about the Marvel Cinematic Universe itself is the impact is substantial in terms of dollars and cents. The Marvel Cinematic Universe as an entity makes more money than about 35 countries in the world um, have gross domestic product. And so when you start thinking about sort of movies in those terms and how much they cost to make, and you're talking about a $300 million film to make, then it makes over a billion dollars in five days. Those numbers are kind of interesting to explore in terms of impact on people and sort of how the narratives worm their way into our thinking. I think sometimes we think about comic books and hero films as being for kids, but that's really not the case. We see kids go to these films. We, of course, see parents go to these films, but then everyone else in between. They're huge, and not just here in the United States, but internationally. When I think about these films, I don't necessarily relate them to politics, which, as I read the book, you know, seemed odd because so many of the books are dealing with things, albeit extraordinary, that in a normal setting would be handled in the political arena. What makes these films political? What are the attributes that are really about politics? Well, uh, again, you know, the the sort of basic narrative of a superhero movie or television show you have some sort of villain who is basically attempting to destabilize or take over some place or some people. So that's a political move. That's, you know, kind of what we call imperialism. And then in the response comes from a superhero who tries to usually stop this sort of takeover and return the place or the people to a, quote, status quo situation. And one of the issues with superheroes is that they're not elected. They are powered by superpowers that they either got accidentally or that they were born with in some capacity. And they operate in a certain sense in a political space because they're protecting a people or a nation or a group in some way from some sort of threat. And so one of the issues around superheroes is that they are fundamentally vigilantes. And that, to me, is maybe why I don't always make the connection 
to politics. They seem inherently lawless. But as you dissect the films, that's not really the case. We do see these kinds of checks and balances in a way in these different spheres. There's a lot in the book. It would be hard to get into each kind of piece of it. What do you think would be most surprising for listeners about the ways in which these films engage in this political conversation? Well, I mean, I think the sort of largest section of the book that we found really interesting as the chapters were rolling in from the authors, of course, takes up a lot of different dimensions of what we would consider to be identity politics. And so we have a lot of exploration of tensions around gender and and sex and the lack of sort of representation also with regard to LGBTQ characters that are so prevalent in the comic books themselves. But there's also a lot of understanding of or thinking about superheroes as people who are disabled in a certain sense because they are abled differently. And so if you do have, you know, sort of all the power of the universe as Captain Marvel may have, that makes you able differently. So you are not necessarily disabled in a standard way of thinking about it, but you are also sort of hampered by your capacities to do things that normal people can, normal in quotes, people can do in their day-to-day lives. And then, of course, somebody like Tony Stark, who doesn't have sort of physical superpowers, but created his suit so that he has superpowers. And we have a number of authors who talk about sort of his trauma and how this is one of the things that spurs him forward to sort of superpower himself. So these are, again, these are sort of identity questions and understandings of representation, uh, masculinity and femininity presentations. You know, those are one side of politics. I would say on the other side of politics is this question of, you know, how do you govern superheroes? You know, that was a really big part of phases one through three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe film series, you know, sort of having the Avengers and then having them make mistakes and having people who died as a result of the things that they did and then having an attempt at a kind of supra-national way of managing them and, of course, having superheroes not want to be managed by governmental institutions. It seems like when we look at that aspect of it in particular, the correlations become pretty clear. You go, oh, I have seen this play out in our real world. When people watch these films, and this is a hard question to to get to, are they making these connections either explicitly like understanding that or is there this kind of subconscious connection to our real world? Well, we are moving towards a second volume where we're actually going to survey individuals who have seen the films to ask them questions about some of these 
issues. So it's hard to get at that information without asking directly um, what people think that they are seeing and understanding when they, they see a film. But popular culture in general is conveying all kinds of narratives to us that we enjoy sort of watching in a spectacle on the big screen or we sit down in our living rooms and watch on television um, that are conveying all kinds of components of politics that we may not necessarily say, oh, that is political. But we are being immersed in a narrative that talks about things that is, in fact, engaging in a sort of political discourse that we will then sort of perhaps reflect on as we think about the film, think about the television show, talk about it with our friends, perhaps read about it online. Uh, And so all of those components, I think, are part of what popular culture and something like superheroic films and television shows convey to us. If you're just tuning in, this is Lake Effect. I'm speaking with Lily Gorin. She is one of the authors of The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, as someone who is a little divorced from the Marvel Cinematic Universe myself, I've seen some of the films, but, you know, I'm certainly not uh, a comic book reader. I will say I have always had the impression that these were films made for and by white men. As you go through the book, that becomes very clear that it is a much more complicated narrative in these films. And something that really surprised me was the information on who's watching these films, uh, the audience that is really engaging in this material. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this was a a chapter in particular by Bethany Lucina, um, and it was really, really fascinating to read that the tickets that are bought, particularly um, by the population in the United States, are African-American ticket buyers, both men and women. And so that in comparison to uh, sort of white ticket buyers, the film's in general, not and we're not talking just about Black Panther or Wakanda Forever, but all of the Marvel cinematic films like Thor and um, Iron Man and so forth, that these have a real appeal to a diverse audience. And as a result of that, it, it is, again, like who is watching the films becomes very interesting in terms of also who's making the films. And this is, again, something that we've seen recently with the Oscars um, and the fact that there were no female directors who were nominated for an Academy Award this year, as in so many years, and that there are often very few black individuals, either African-American or from other countries who are nominated as directors or even writing credits and so forth. So that, you know, Oscar so white and production so white is still an issue. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has been sort of talking about pushing forward with more representation, more diversity, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, you've seen sort of a little bit more of that on television, where the the sort of ratings numbers aren't always as clear as the ticket sale numbers with regard to big box office hits or attempts at hits. And so I think that who the audience is, who the perceived audience is by consumers in general, but also by the studio and also by its parent company, Disney, are keys to part of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is also trying to 
present as its brand. Going through the book, especially as someone who is a little on the outside of this, I I think the thing I was most struck by was honestly just the power of this universe to some extent. Uh, the, The power it has giving people an emotional connection to these, you know, fictional characters, but also in shaping opinions, shaping views on right and wrong and and how we want our world to play out, I guess. What what we think is right for government controls, these these things that really govern our lives. What do you think the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe looks like given its audience, given its stated goals? Do we see this as a universe that continues on a, for lack of a better word, kind of progressive outlook of politics? Or do we think, given, you know, its masters to some extent, a large corporation and uh, the, the desire to make more and more money, do, do we think that could change? Well, my co-author Nick Carnes and I, also with Bethany Lacina, had a piece in the Washington Post around the time that Wakanda Forever came out that really focused in on this question of whether the MCU was too woke, because this was something that was coming up in some commentary about, you know, what the MCU was presenting, who the heroes were and what did they look like, and what ultimately were the narratives that were components of not only Wakanda Forever, but, you know, some of the other films that have come out under phase four and moving into phase five. And so we've seen more diverse casts. We've seen stories that are positioned sort of less in the West and and to some degree more in the East. And of course, Wakanda Forever takes up a Meso-Aztec group who lives underwater. And then, of course, we have Wakanda, which is an African country that nobody knew existed for a very long time that, you know, is sort of very futuristic and incredibly wealthy and competent. And so you have these contrasting societies that we are looking at with our sort of westernized eyes. But part of what superhero films generally do is exercise a kind of conservative small c approach, which is to sort of keep what was good. And and so in that context, I think that there is, you know, Disney wants to make money. MCU wants to make money. So they very gingerly oftentimes step forward into realms that may be more controversial. And so the question, again, of representation of LGBTQ characters has been really kind of quiet, both in television and in film. And this is something that fans have been asking for and fans have kind of been demanding. And this is so prevalent in the comic books, but it hasn't quite been translated into big screen or even to the little screen. So that there is still some of the small C conservative narrative that is definitely embedded in what superheroes usually are doing. It'll be interesting to see how the MCU evolves. Lily, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you again, Joy. Dr. Lily Gorin is an author and editor of the book The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Gorin is also a professor of political science at Carroll University. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lake effect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight podcast.